Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Greetings, War Room podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us today for an episode of A Better Peace. I'm Jacqueline Whit, Professor of Strategy and the War Room Podcast Editor here at the U.S. Army War College. On today's program, we're going to take a look at the relationship between technology, intellectual property, and national security. Now, I know I've probably piqued the interest of a few attorneys and maybe some tech geeks, and the rest of our audience is getting ready to hit the fast-forward button. But don't do it. Um, Even though these topics can seem technical and narrow, they're vitally important as the United States thinks about how to protect its interest and to engage with actors on a global stage. And it's a critical part of the story when it comes to the U.S.-China relationship as well. So I've invited Dr. Rob Farley back to the studio today, as this is a topic of his ongoing research agenda. Rob is a political scientist and a senior lecturer at the Patterson School at the University of Kentucky, and is also a visiting professor here at the U.S. Army War College this year. So thanks for coming back to the War Room, Rob. Hey, glad to be here. All right. So it seems to be a tradition now that I start podcasts with questions about definitions, um, an exercise that seems sort of simple but can often lead to some of the opening up the complexities of a topic. Uh, So in this case, what is intellectual property? So intellectual property, the way we normally conceive of it, uh, is a a class of property that is protected um, by law but that isn't tangible. Um, And so it uh, sort of people come up with it in their minds, thus the intellectual part. Um, The uh, three kinds of intellectual property that people are usually talking about are patents, which is a um, a state-granted monopoly over a particular invention um, that is novel in some way that that lasts for some particular amount of time. Trade secrets, which are uh, something that your company or firm comes up with, um, and then you are protected against certain kinds of copying from uh, other actors, right? Sort of uh, particular kinds of espionage, industrial espionage, and so forth. And then copyright, which might be what we're most familiar with, and that's uh, copyright is why Mickey Mouse, uh, for example, will never be in the public domain, right? So it's um, that uh, artistic creators have uh, a certain monopoly over, li- license monopoly to profit from their artistic cre- creations for some uh, particular period of time. Okay, so within those three categories, um, are all of them related to national security? Mainly the first two. Um, so when, when we're talking about the national security aspects of um, uh, intellectual property law, we are mainly thinking about patents and trade secrets. Um, and both of them are important. So uh, patent law is important in figuring out how a state can help drive innovation in its defense industrial base. Um, that tends to be the, the biggest part of what patent law does. And so differences in patent law um, can change how uh, a state, how firms go about innovating, how states go about um, trying to create innovation in their system. And in fact, if we go back to really the origins of patent law, um, we find that a lot of it is national security applications, right? It's states um, trying to grant a monopoly license to particular inventors to come up with things like um, a device that can measure longitude uh, in addition to latitude and can tell ships Mm -hmm. where they are, or uh, devices and machines that can turn salt water into fresh water, um, <clears throat> and that way then extend the imperial reach of the British government or, or something else along those lines. 
Um, uh, patent law also uh, gives the uh, often will give a gov government ownership over particular inventions, um, which will then allow them to control the licensing of those inventions and the production of those inventions. Um, and so, uh, in the early 20th century, for example, we saw the United States and the British government managing patent law in order to control uh, the development of the torpedo, the development of certain guns, the development of a lot of different aviation technologies, um, both so that they could increase the production and innovation of those technologies, but also so they could prevent the dissemination through the international system. Mm -hmm. um, trade secrets matter for international security um, and for military possible uh, military capability more generally um, because both whether you're government-owned or privately-owned, um, firms that have trade secrets want to prevent other companies and other countries from learning about them. And so trade secret protection law um, essentially gives uh, a government certain kinds of legal tools to prevent um, uh, other governments and companies that are working for other uh, governments um, from coming up with the same kind of military technologies. Okay. Um, so uh, my next question is really... So you talked about patent law and trade secret law sort of in a state-based way, that there's American law, there's British law, um, and that seems to follow sort of the way the world is organized for at least a while. But it seems also like there are going to be gaps and seams that are created by national laws that maybe don't cross international boundaries. Is that yeah. So, True. I mean, um, and, and the way that intellectual property people think about this is to sort of think about the era of national heroes and then the international uh, era. Um, you know, really super long story short, um, the uh, American approach to intellectual property law and to the protect protection of um, industrial and intellectual technology uh, licensing and so forth from other countries was... We steal everything we can until we start making cool stuff, and then we try to aggressively to protect everything that we have, mm -hmm. and then we And pursue. then make it ours. We try to make it ours, and at once we become a really technologically advanced country, then we embrace international intellectual property protection. Um, and that transition for the United States um, is somewhere in the 20th century, right? Um, and a lot of countries follow uh, uh, a uh, um, line pretty similar to that, right? I mean, int international intellectual property protection begins to be a thing in the 19th century, but it's not a very big deal until the 20th century. Um, and in fact, it's not uh, a very big deal at all until in the late 20th century, where you have really serious efforts um, by a lot of countries to develop uh, multilateral ways of ensuring that patents are respected, ensuring that trade secrets are respected, um, and so forth. And that's mainly been a drive that's come out of the United States and has come out of other really advanced countries like the United States. That have an interest in protecting... Exactly. That have an interest in protecting our advanced technology from the countries that might steal it or from the countries that uh, are poorer than us and have less technology than us mm -hmm. and then might be economic competitors. Okay. So there's there's a military and an economic component to this. Okay. So that you've talked us through sort of some of the American developments. Um, in the introduction, I said China is another big player in this. So can you walk us through the sort of Chinese approach to intellectual property? Yeah, well... Um, yeah, the Chinese. So the Chinese approach is really, really fascinating. So I mean, the American approach is kind of intuitive to all of us, right? We have patents, we have trade secrets, we have private companies that come up with these and we protect them. It's more complicated than that. It gets pretty weird at times. Um, what people don't understand 
is that the Soviet system was actually in a lot of ways kind of similar. Um, the Soviets had were, had fully like internationally okay, groovy uh, intellectual property law for a really long mm-hmm. time. They had patents, they had trade secrets, they had copyright. It's just nobody had any private capital to do any investment. So the patents just turned out to be sort of awards that each research lab would, would come up with. And so the Soviets would spin out thousands and thousands of patents per year. Um, the Chinese... Uh, starting off, tried a really innovative new system. Let's not have patents at all, right? What if we don't have any intellectual property protection? Because guess what? That's so capitalist. Um, and it was utterly disastrous. So this is during the the Maoist period. Um, their entire industrial base, their entire industrial base, uh, not just the defense, but uh, the whole thing, lacked patent law. And the impact of that was that no one would share anything with anyone. Because anything you shared immediately became the property of someone else, right? That, mm-hmm. that there was no protection for you for sharing any kind of innovation that you had. And so what the Chinese eventually discovered was that, well, you, re- you need something, right? You need something in order for a modern innovative economy to function. Um, and so both indigenously um, and then later in response to lots of pressures from the United States um, and from sort of this broad international intellectual property um, regime, the Chinese uh, began to come into compliance with what what looks like a pretty modern, um, in a lot of ways, fairly standard uh, inter-intellectual property regime. Um, one that still you know, likes to acquire tons of stuff from the outside mm-hmm. in fairly illicit ways, but that domestically functions in ways that are pretty similar to the way that the U.S. system functioned way back when, you know, if the U.S. had had big state-owned enterprises. Okay. So when it comes to some of the challenges that strategic leaders or policymakers face when thinking about intellectual property and the national security realm, what are some of the um, challenges that they sort of have to balance or consider? Uh, I'm thinking about things like technology transfers, military sales, like all of these things would seem to play in this space? Well, a big one for the United States, but I think also for other countries, is this question of dual-use technologies. Okay. Um, the the Pentagon, for uh, a variety of reasons, has been pretty serious about acquiring lots and lots of intellectual property rights from the people that it buys stuff from. Um, because say that you have a, you know, a company, Lockmart, um, that makes a widget, the F-35. Um, you want to acquire a lot of intellectual property rights associated with that so that you don't become dependent upon um, that company, right? So just so Lockmark can't just tomorrow decide to stop making the F-35. You want to acquire a lot of... Because it. if you if you own the intellectual property rights, you can then... D- you can decide how they get used you, and yeah, right. you how could, things get manufactured. And you could like conceivably that. then go to Boeing. And ha- I mean, mm-hmm. that's all nonsense in the real world, but... But, but that's in how, theory, yeah, that's in how theory. it could work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, especially companies, like civilian companies, that do dual-use stuff that's absolutely critical to you know what we define as the third offset really hate that. I mean, they hate that in every way that a company can hate that because they're really dependent on the civilian market. In fact, the civilian market is a much bigger deal for most civilian companies than the military market is. There's just tons and tons more money to make. And so the approach that uh, the government often takes to the acquisition of these uh, IP rights is something that's completely anathema to working with especially tech companies, but also other companies um, that are producing anything that might be dual use. So that's a problem. Um, There is a state secret problem. So uh, the government likes to sometimes declare that certain patents, certain trade secrets and so forth are state secrets. Um, That's great, except that 
innovation is kind of dependent on the idea that people are going to share stuff. In fact, the whole idea of patents is about people sharing stuff. So I can share a patent with you, but I'll still own it. Mm-hmm. When the government declares that patent to be secret, that means it's not being shared. And that means that one lab can't work with another lab and you slow down innovation all over. And so this was a sort of a problem with the Sylvia system, but it's also a problem in the U.S. system. Um, you also, in just in the American innovation system, run into lots of weird contracting problems because, you know, as we've moved from this um, model where basically the big defense industrial giants are just kind of um, prime contractors and they subcontract with all these other little companies, um, the U.S. government has sort of had to um, mediate between all of those little companies uh, and their prime contractors, which gets really, really complicated. Oh, and here's the crazy bit. So we've moved to this prime contractor model, right, where a little bit of the information about an invention and technology is going to be held by the government and a little bit by Lockmart and a little bit by, you know, Bill's widgets, Law firms have to mediate every single part of that relationship, mm-hmm. right? Because they have to manage the relationships between Lockmart and Bill's widgets. They also have to manage the relationship increasingly between Lockmart and the United States government. Other countries have people who like to find stuff out about American technology. What? Yeah, no, it turns <laughs> out it's crazy. Um, and what they found, what we found out, especially early in this decade, was that the weakest link was the law firms that uh, Chinese and other hackers would attack law firms that were doing IP work, that were mediating between Lockmart and all of its subcontractors and then Lockmart and the United States. Because there's going to be valuable information in contracts and legal documents in all of the documentation. So you create, you essentially are creating a gigantic surface area um, for espionage. Sure, the more people who know something, the higher likelihood that it can... Right, right. And you get all sorts of weakest link problems when you do that. Um, So it's absolutely sort of the way that intellectual property law functions is absolutely critical to like how the U.S. defense industrial base innovates. Um, But it's also a fairly big deal to how the Chinese industrial uh, uh, defense industrial base innovates because they are in in some ways dependent on us. Right. And so they take stuff from us. Now, what's going to get fun down the road um, is when the Chinese try to sell something on the international market that we have some sort of compelling story that they stole in some fashion, mm-hmm. right? And so the great one here might be the J-31, right? So the J-31 is the Chinese version of the F-35. Um, and we think we have some pretty compelling evidence that, in fact, the J-31 steals a ton of technologies out of the F-35. You know, down the road, if Shenyang or Chengdu try to sell uh, J-31 to any country that has um, a trade agreement with the United States, and every trade agreement with the United States now has, like, chapters and chapters of intellectual property law with arbitrations and rules and rights mm-hmm. and everything, they're going to run into problems. Right? I mean, we saw what happens when Huawei sends an executive abroad um, and they get arrested. We also saw what happened when the Chinese tried to buy something from Russia. Um, we have a lot of tools to enforce what we feel may be infringement on trade secrets and infringement on patents. Even if it's done inside the Chinese defense industrial base, we can mess with their stuff using intellectual property law. Okay. Is intellectual property, I this was one of the major sort of talking points. You said, right, about trade agreements. Um, what's the stat, like, does the U.S. and China agree um, on sort of basic 
ideas or are they operating from just two different assumptions? I mean, increasingly we do. We have, we sort of have a, like the Chinese attitude towards intellectual property is not what it was 30 years mm-hmm. ago, steal everything. It's not Alexander Hamilton's idea. Like let's go to Europe and steal everything, right? That's not the Chinese idea. Um, uh, you know, conceptually there's a lot of agreement on what, you know, both domestically an intellectual property regime should look like and internationally what intellectual property law should look like. Um, the problem is that there are lots of movers in the Chinese system who are pretty committed to uh, policies that are going to appropriate technology from the United States and from a lot of other countries. Um, and some of those are direct espionage, where they're just literally stealing trade secrets um, straight out of um, straight out of uh, uh, the uh, U.S. companies and European companies. Um, hacking of the U.S. Patent Office, although the patents are all fairly public, but now you can download the whole thing. Right, mm-hmm. you can just download okay. all of the entire USPO, basically. Um, And uh, forced technology transfer, um, where U.S. companies, if they want to work there, they have to transfer technologies, and those technologies aren't as well protected. Um, So there are some reasons why, even though there's this agreement on principle between the United States and China, that um, the Chinese system still does not work perfectly, and so you get a lot. There are consequences that flow from that. But, you know, to throw out a non-military example, the big problem used to be Hollywood, like Hollywood and copyright. You know, that was why the Chinese were horrible on intellectual property. And that's gone now. Why? Because the Chinese make lots and lots of movies that make tons and tons of money. And so they suddenly became very interested in robust copyright law. In protecting their products just as as well. So you can see that this is in part like a a sort of evolutionary development as economies develop as, um, okay, that makes sense. Are there other places, uh, if you're sort of prognosticating into, into the future, uh, the U S China relationship is an interesting one to look at. Are there other places to like keep an eye on? I think India is a really big deal. Um, The, I mean, the Indian relationship with technology is a, it's a very strange economy in that sense, right? And that it has very high-tech sectors and very, but a very low-tech base. Um, and historically, the Indian um, state has been pretty reluctant to embrace um, uh, modern international intellectual property law on on sort of both um, ideological grounds, but also on structural grounds because they want to be able to acquire. Um, I mean, the United States is really looking at a major military relationship with India going into the future. Um, and whereas, you know, with the Russians, it was never a problem, right? Because the Russians just don't care over much about the Indians taking stuff. Um, we really do want the Indians to um, have suitable and pretty up-to-standard intellectual property mm-hmm. regulations. If we're going to send them stuff like emails, catapults, and if we're going to you know, consider other really high-tech stuff to be transferred to their military, because um, we don't want them stealing it and producing it, and we certainly don't want them stealing it, producing it, and then exporting it um, in, co- in uh, competition with us. Sure. On the domestic front, do you think there are equally um, sort of interesting or problematic areas of intellectual property uh, law and treatment that are going to be of concern to the national security community? Yeah, I mean, and this is not a novel view. I mean, it's a pretty widely held view of people who do IP in uh, the Pentagon. That that something has to change. I mean, there really has to be a change. And and so, I mean, a lot of people are talking about this, and there are changes sort of afoot um, in how the U.S. government approaches the acquisition of 
um, of intellectual property that really has to be more sensitive to the concerns of civilian companies mm-hmm. over sort of their ability to manage technology. And so like DIUX and um, uh, other initiatives that are supposed to reach out to the tech sector and so forth, um, they have been much more sensitive to the civilian tech, not tech firm concerns. I mean, it seems like one of the places where people might imagine that military contracts are so enormous that the DOD, right, the, DOD, the DOD's budget is just so big that it would be easy to imagine that that overwhelms civilian use. But in reality, it's the it's the opposite, that government money and government contracts are a small piece right. of what these firms are doing. And so figuring out how to navigate in that, right. that and, environment. And, and, I mean, DOD sort of proceeded for a really long time on the former assumption, which right. was that we're just so big that they're going to be so happy to deal with this at all, that they'll right. give us everything, right? It's like, no. And there, there are horror stories, right? I mean, there, there are stories of subcontractors having their intellectual property just outright stolen by prime contractors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the U.S. government saying, oh, no, I'm sorry, that litigation, it's a state secret. And so you can't even sue to get your property back. Yeah. And that would, yeah, that would not, uh, I imagine, make people want to. No work with work with the US government uh, no, very no. much. Um, so if someone wanted to learn more about intellectual property and national security, uh, what recommendations would you have for them for a future reading or study? Yeah, I mean there are th- there are I mean, there's a ton of stuff, but I mean just sort of three books just off the top of my head for a good introduction. Uh, Adrian Johns has a book called Piracy, um, which talks a lot about intellectual property law generally, but also has a fair amount of concentration on the the national security aspect of it. Um, Catherine Ex- Epstein has an absolutely fantastic book called Torpedo. Um, it's really really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you read it yeah. too? Yeah. No, it's fan- it's about. I mean, it essentially makes the case that intellectual property law and the modern modern defense and base have the same origin, um, which is in sort of naval acquisition at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, but it also has lots of really interesting stuff about how organizations innovate. So it's a really great book. Um, Susan Sell's book, which the name temporarily escapes me, but which is about trips and how international intellectual property laws has really come to be um, over the past. I mean, if you really want to see the face of evil, like it's not even big defense companies, it's big ag and how they manage <laughs> big ag and big uh, medical companies and how they manage intellectual property law um, and how they've turned that to their um, to their benefit. It's really fascinating. And then there's a new book coming out um, that I haven't read yet. Um, it's by Dan O'Regan, um, and it's called Taking Nazi Tech, um, and it focuses on... Um, just the whole wealth of patents and trade secrets that the United States um, gathered from Italy, Japan, and Germany right after World War II, and how it decided to distribute that, that, that whole trove of intellectual property across the U.S. economy. Great. So some historical work, some uh, work that sort of spans national security and other sectors. Um, so I think that sounds like great additions to our collective reading lists. Uh, thanks for joining us today uh, for, I think, actually a really interesting conversation about intellectual property and national security. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Piece, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.